American Catholic History is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello, and welcome to American Catholic History. If you like our podcast, be sure to rate us and give us a review wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Thomas McEncrada. <laughs> get ready, folks, because today's topic is St. Patrick's Day. Tom's going to get a little Blarney happy. And guilty as charged in anticipation. Well, I have kissed the Blarney Stone on two different occasions, so you tell me. Oh, I know. There was no mistaking that I was marrying an Irishman. Hey, what can I say? If you're lucky enough to be Irish, you're lucky enough. Okay, before we overdo it. What do you mean, we? Yes. Before you overdo it. Oh, who am I kidding? All right. Let's get into our topic, which is how Irish Catholics here in America made St. Patrick's Day such a huge deal, really all around the world. Right. St. Patrick was one of the great missionary saints, and his few extant writings, his confessions and a letter he wrote, are wonderful fodder for meditation. I recommend them to everyone. But when you think about it, there are other great missionary saints who converted nations and took on the dominant pagan culture in many places. St. Augustine of Canterbury for Britain, St. Boniface for Germany, St. Francis Xavier for the Far East, and more. But none of them get the same annual celebration that Patrick gets. Exactly why Patrick gets this observance is an interesting phenomenon, and frankly, it's due in no small part to Protestant persecution in Ireland and here in America. Yes, and it's also due to the way Irish Catholics asserted themselves in the New World, how America has historically made it possible for immigrants both to assimilate and to retain their native cultures, and to the incredible tendency of America to export its cultural phenomena. So let's give a bit of history. Patrick was a 5th century missionary to Ireland and the first bishop of Armagh, which is the primatial see of Ireland to this day. After he died sometime in the mid-400s, he was venerated as a saint, but the church didn't have any official canonization process at the time. His traditional date of death, March 17th, wasn't added to the liturgical calendar until the 1630s. Now, for about a thousand years, celebrating St. Patrick wasn't a problem. Ireland was ruled by factions of warring chieftains for centuries, but they were basically all Catholic. Even when Henry II of England came in and established English dominance of Ireland in the 12th century, that wasn't a problem because England was also Catholic. To be sure, the English were never quite benevolent lords. They dominated Ireland more as a way to control their own backyard than because they actually cared about the Irish. But at least they were Catholic, and so allowed Catholic celebrations and religious establishments. It wasn't until the 1530s, when King Henry VIII decided that he would rather have his woman than remain in God's church, that things got hairy for Catholics in Ireland. So beginning in the 1530s, Catholicism was outlawed, the monasteries dissolved, priests and religious were exiled or executed in mass numbers, and things were even more terrible. But most of the Catholics didn't lose their faith. However, this new religious oppression did mean that even more Irish people were suddenly heading all over the world as indentured servants or even slaves, as priests and religious serving elsewhere, or if they had the means just fleeing the oppression and looking for a better life elsewhere. Over the centuries, that increasingly meant crossing the Atlantic for the New World, but at this point, the New World was still quite new. Columbus had sailed the ocean blue just 40 years prior. 
The English first came over in the 1580s, settling at Roanoke, but that failed, and then permanently in 1607 at Jamestown. The English settled at Jamestown, but the earliest recorded celebration of St. Patrick in the New World occurred in an unexpected place. Si, por supuesto. (laughs) We mentioned that some Irish travel to the world as priests. Well, it appears that one Irish priest, Father Richard Arthur, was a chaplain to the fortified Spanish settlement at St. Augustine, Florida, at the opening of the 17th century. Records indicate that around that time, St. Patrick was considered the patron protector of the settlement's maize crops, of all things. Remember, Patrick wasn't even officially on the liturgical calendar until the 1630s, but he had been celebrated annually on his traditional date of death, March 17th, from shortly after his death 1,200 years earlier. Now, according to records from the era, a volley of cannons marked the celebration of St. Patrick's Feast on March 17th, 1600, making that the first time the day was celebrated here in the Americas. And then the following year, likely at Father Arthur's instigation, the people of St. Augustine held a parade in honor of St. Patrick, or as they would have called him, San Patricio. So, Feliz Dia de San Patricio would have been spoken long before Happy St. Patrick's Day. Father Arthur leaves the history books shortly after this. Whether he died or sailed on to another location, we don't know. And the parade was not kept up. So while St. Augustine can lay claim to the first ever St. Patrick's Day parade in the New World, they do not have the oldest continuous annual parade. No, to get the oldest continuous celebration, we have to fast forward about 130 years and travel up the coast about 900 miles. So it's now the 1730s and the city of Boston is about 100 years old. Long a bastion of Puritanism, things have relaxed a bit and some Irish immigrants have come over. In 1737, a group of more well-to-do Irish settlers gathered on March 17th to mark their native home's patron saint and to establish the Irish Charitable Society, which was formed to aid less fortunate Irish immigrants. Now, we're not absolutely sure if these particular Irishmen were Protestant or Catholic. It seems they were actually Presbyterian, but at least they weren't inveterate anti-Catholics. This gathering and dinner became an annual thing in Boston, making Boston's celebration of St. Patrick's Day the oldest continuous celebration in the New World. And it's still a holiday in Suffolk County. There you go. They call it Evacuation Day, but we all know it's really St. Patrick's Day. But that still wasn't quite the big public spectacle like we see nowadays with the parades. That was no more than what lots of ethnic groups do in their new home countries. For the beginning of the big public displays, we travel down I-95 to New York City and we check in on the 1760s. In the 1760s, New York was garrisoned by the British military and the British military had Irish units. Now, we talked in episode 87 about how Catholicism was illegal in New York during this period, and Catholic priests, like Father Ferdinand Farmer, risked hanging for just entering New York. But the law seems not to have been applied carefully to these Irish units. On March 17, 1762, proud Catholic Irishmen in the British units rose early and marched in a parade through the streets of Lower Manhattan to a tavern for a special St. Patrick's Day breakfast. Yes, kegs and eggs is an early part of the tradition. The annual parade became a thing. And what happened in reaction to this parade all but guaranteed that the annual parade and demonstration of Irish culture would grow and would be exported. 
The anti-Catholics began counter-demonstrating on March 16th and 17th, conducting anti-Catholic activities and putting up mock effigies of Irishmen dressed in tattered rags with necklaces of potatoes and with, of course, whiskey bottles in their hands. This was a practice known as patty making. And this gets to why the celebration of St. Patrick's Day grew to be such a thing here in the States and why it spread around the world. The Irish were the first major immigrant group to the 13 colonies, and then they were the first major group of immigrants after the founding of the United States. They were the first to bring their own native culture and all of their cultural pride in large numbers. They brought it into this new nation that guaranteed religious liberty and allowed cultural autonomy in its very foundational documents. Now, to be sure, there had to be some assimilation to get along in society and in the markets, but back home and in their own enclave, provided they weren't violating the laws of civil society, they were free to be Irish and Catholic with all of what that meant. So after 600 or 700 years of English cultural and economic dominance, with the latter 200 to 300 years of that, including brutal religious persecution, this was a whole new experience. In this new nation, they could fight back against those who would violently suppress their celebration of their faith and their Irish identity, and the laws of the land protected them. In the United States, they could take part in government and join the military without taking an anti-Catholic oath. Here, they could rise in society by their own industry, and there was no aristocracy or structure that made further advancement impossible. In Ireland, the oppression continued until the emancipation of the Catholic faith in 1829. But those were the laws of the land based on the high-minded ideals of our national founding. The actual practice of the high-minded ideals and the application of the laws was another matter, as it was in so many areas. And this was where Irish Catholics found the celebrations of St. Patrick's Day an important statement. Yes. The annual demonstrations were a way to assert themselves in society, keep their own spirits up, and let those elements of society who hated them know that the Irish Catholics were not going to go quietly back into that dark night of oppression. They were not prepared to allow this nation, which was founded to protect liberties that were denied to them back home, to abandon those ideals and become more like the oppressive regime they'd fled. So in that way, the annual celebration of St. Patrick's Day is an annual celebration of what the United States was founded to be a place where people had an opportunity to live together in common society, even if they were separated from one another in some ways. It's okay to retain your native customs within your local sphere until they infringe on others' rights, but you also have to find those ways to live in community in the larger sense. It's subsidiarity and federalism all at the same time. So in that way, it makes sense that St. Patrick's Day would become a big civic thing here in America while remaining just a religious holiday in Ireland. In Ireland, it was a high holy day, the celebration of the island's patron saint. But they didn't have to continually assert their cultural identity among other cultures in a strange land because, well, they were home. In fact, since it was a high holy day, Irish law prohibited pubs to be open on St. Patrick's Day for many decades. St. Patrick's Day in Ireland didn't begin to resemble the American celebration until the 1960s when televisions became more widespread in Ireland and the Irish people saw how much fun Americans were having. So through television, America's Irish festival of St. Patrick's Day was repatriated, if you will. Now they've caught up, with Dublin hosting not only a parade, but a four-day festival that more than one million people attend annually. 
Yeah, I'd say they've caught up. (laughs) Nowadays, St. Patrick's Day celebrations with parades and festivals can be found in many cities around the world, including in Russia and Australia, (laughs) which makes sense because do you know what you call a slow Irishman? (laughs) An Australian. (laughs) You got it. As well as in the Caribbean, plus in Japan, Argentina, Germany, and many other countries all around the globe. This American cultural export is really a collaborative effort between Americans and people of Irish ancestry. We in America have a history of exporting our cultural phenomena for good and ill, but this particular one was not spread by American propaganda or economic activity like blue jeans, Hollywood movies, and democracy. This one spread because there are roughly 80 million people of Irish ancestry living in dozens of countries around the world, and lots of them are happy to celebrate their Irish heritage. Cue the music of wherever you go around the world, you find an Irish pub. (laughs) It's pretty much true. They got one in Honolulu. They got one in Moscow, too. They got four of them in Sydney and a couple of Kat- couple in Kathmandu. How many in Rome? Yeah, two. Uh, at least two that I know of. Found one in Krakow. Yep, found one in Krakow. Okay. So that's the broad strokes of the history of where the celebration came from and why it's such a big deal around the world. Let's say a few words about a few particulars of the celebration, like corned beef and cabbage and wearing green. I'll start off with what this day's celebration is not. It is not a day to get riotously drunk and act like a bloody hooligan. This came up when we talked about the Mardi Gras celebrations in episode 81. Secular culture has this horrible tendency to latch onto the celebration part of the feast day and turn it into an excuse for bacchanalia and bad behavior, divorced from the sacred and important reasons for the celebration. Celebrating with a beverage or two is fine if you're able to handle it responsibly, but no sacred feast should ever be taken as a day to focus on drinking to excess and wearing offensive clothing. It's a day to celebrate the saint who brought Christianity to Ireland and Irish culture. Like corned beef and cabbage. Yeah, corned beef and cabbage. Corned beef was not something the Irish ate in Ireland. Beef was a delicacy for the wealthy. The poor rarely could afford meat, and when they did have meat, it was not beef. More likely, it was pork or ham. Corned beef became the staple for St. Patrick's Day because St. Patrick's Day was a day to splurge. So for the very poor Irish immigrants living in New York, that meant splurging on whatever meat they could afford, and that generally meant getting salted beef. One source for this was ships returning to harbor. The Irish women would hurry down to the dock and meet the sailors coming back on shore, and they'd buy whatever salted beef provisions the sailors still had available. Then they'd take it home where they'd boil it three times to remove most of the salt and then include cabbage in the water with the third boil and serve that. It was a big deal for them. Corned beef only recently joined the rest of the traditions repatriated to Ireland's own celebration of St. Patrick's Day. And wearing green, surprisingly, isn't as historic as people might think. Ireland is known as the Emerald Isle, and one classic Irish tune touts the 40 shades of green that you'll find all over Ireland. But blue was traditionally the color of St. Patrick. As you said, historically, St. Patrick was depicted wearing blue, not green. And blue was considered the national color of Ireland, with a blue flag being the typical Irish standard. The change to green, once again, goes back to actions by King Henry VIII. Up until Henry VIII, the King of England was considered the Lord of Ireland, but not the King of Ireland. In 1541, Henry VIII was declared King of Ireland, and that meant he needed a royal coat of arms for this new title. He chose the harp on the traditional St. Patrick's blue field and put his crown on it. So then over the years, the blue that had traditionally been Ireland's own became more associated with English domination. 
This led the Irish, particularly the Catholics, who suffered under English rule the most, to adopt green as their new national color. That also, of course, meant a reclothing Patrick. So when the Irish came over to America and brought their devotion to St. Patrick and their affinity for Ireland with them, their color was green. And there you have it. St. Patrick's Day is a very American and very Catholic thing in so many ways. We hope and pray that you will have a holy and healthy St. Patrick's Day. And I have to close with a toast. I know you would. Of course. A toast. Here's to stealing, cheating, fighting, and drinking. If you steal, may you steal a fair maiden's heart. If you cheat, may you cheat death. If you fight, may you fight for a brother. And if you drink, may you share a drink with me. Are you finished? I've got lots more. You've been listening to American Catholic History on the StarQuest Production Network. If you've been enjoying our podcast, please help us out by giving us a five-star rating and a good review. And we ask you to consider supporting the work of SQPN. Aye, now is a great time to become a StarQuest patron. Thanks to a generous gift from a StarQuest supporter, when you start a new Patreon monthly pledge at sqpn.com give, the first three months will be matched by an equal amount from our donor to support all our shows, including American Catholic history, making your gift go even further. And we're more than halfway to our goal of 2,000 in new monthly pledges. Won't you help us close the gap? If you've been thinking of becoming a StarQuest patron, now's the time. Visit sqpn.com give today. <laughs> I was waiting for that Irish accent to come out. <laughs> To learn more about the history of St. Patrick's Day, to find previous episodes, or to learn about our upcoming pilgrimage to the Kentucky Holy Land and Bourbon Country, please visit sqpn.com history. We also love feedback and hearing about great Catholic history sites and stories from all over. You can email us at history at sqpn.com or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash American Catholic History. Instagram at ACH underscore podcast or follow StarQuest on Twitter at SQPN. I'm Noelle Heaster Crow. And I'm Tom Crow. Thank you once again for joining us on American Catholic History on StarQuest. Well, I have kissed the Blarney Stone on two different occasions, so you tell me. Oh, I know. There was no mistaking that when I said, I can't, I can't even. Why is this? Why is this slow? Australia was a penal colony. I know. So why is a slow Irish? Oh, because he, he got, got caught. caught. <laughs> oh my gosh! I knew it was a penal colony. I didn't. Ah, oh, oh, I got it. I got it. The rare joke that still is funny when it after it's been explained. You know, I'm really disappointed. I thought you were going to break out an oh, Irish song. All the money that air I spent all through this episode. I spent it in good company. Thank you. And all the harm that e'er I've done. Alas, it was to none but me. But all I've done for want of wit. To memory now I can't recall. So fill to me the parting glass. Good night and joy be with you all. Oh, all the comrades that e'er I had, 
are sorry for my going away, and all the sweethearts that e'er I had would wish me one more day to stay. But since it falls.